Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. Today, we are continuing on from the last episode with John Reed and Redbeard's Bakery as we explore a movement that is rapidly expanding, rather like a sourdough culture on a hot day, called Grains. That's G-R-A-I-N-Z. This group of people are self-professed nerds and their topic of interest is grains, specifically how they are grown, milled and turned into bread, the systems around which they call the grains economy. As you'll know from the last episode, I went to Redbeard several times to interview John, his family and staff about how a small town bakery can epitomise everything so many people are working towards in sustainability, including localisation, community building and earth-loving farming practices. One of my visits was specifically because a group of like-minded people from across Australia had descended on the bakery. They were all members of the Grains Movement and had come to Redbeards on a drizzly autumn morning to celebrate John Reed and wish him well as he embarked on treatment for cancer. In each interview, I asked them what impact John had had on their baking lives. I tell you this so that you have the context of this particular set of interviews. So you'll hear mention of John a lot in this episode, but he would be the first to protest the idea that he is more influential or impactful than any other member of the Greens community. Each is a leader in their own right, as you'll hear, and they all bring their own expertise and influence to the group. It is a grassroots movement in the truest sense. I also asked each of them how they got into baking in general, which I found really interesting. So many different origin stories about how each one of them stumbled into baking and then fell in love and then became an advocate within their own communities for sourdough bread. In the background of all these interviews, you'll hear various noises. There was some rain that day and power tools were being used nearby. And of course, the sounds of this group all catching up and talking shop with each other as they stood around the courtyards of the Redbeard's Bakery. I spoke to so many of them and got so much audio that I can't possibly fit it all in this episode, but I'm hoping that what I've put in this show will give you a taste of how unique they all are in their shared passion for good bread and healthy systems of grain production, from farmer to miller to baker to your plate. Redbeard's Bakery and Saltgrass operate on Jara country, home of the Jajarung people. We had bakers from around Australia in this episode, and they exist, as do we all, on Aboriginal land. We pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging right across Australia. Sovereignty was never ceded. Salt of the Earth people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green at saltgrasspodcast.com. I'm going to start with John Reed as he explains how the Greens movement formed. Then one by one, you'll hear from others in the movement about what their interest is and how the Greens movement has impacted them. The precursor for Greens, which is this ongoing wonderful connection between all the bakers in Australia and a bit around the world as well is a thing called Bread Ed which was the first iteration of it so Bread Ed started with a group of bakers who got together in Victoria but they were from all around Australia and one of the things they did one of the activities was to come and visit Redbeard. I was probably too busy to be directly involved I was just helping out by being one of the places where everyone went to to go and 
check out a bakery in action. Did it have a focus even back then of sourdough organic bread or was it bread industry broadly? It was definitely, well, not definitely anything probably. Is the, is the, and this, is, this is the problem with this particular eclectic group of people and bakers is that they didn't probably want to be defined too much and they didn't want to have a leader. You know, there's a whole lot of things that they didn't want to redo and, and a lot of the ways in which education and bread, the structure of the way we've related in the past, they didn't want to repeat any of that. They wanted it to be not led by the bloody industry that was full of corruption and, you know, influence and advertising. They didn't want that. And that was one of the driving things was to have it as a really egalitarian, everyone contributing equally and being allowed to contribute. So it was based on the whole of philosophy, which was incredibly inclusive. So it had really strong, and it still does today, we still hold to a hold of those values that are not about commercialisation and undue influence of bigger industry players. So it's always been a very level playing field and it's one of the things that's kept it really strong. How did it morph into grains and how did you become involved? Everyone came and did a field trip up to Redbeard from Melbourne where it was loosely happening I guess saw the value in it very quickly and even though I hadn't been directly involved I quickly saw it was just a really special thing that was being created by this group of bakers and I immediately signed up <laughs> and said yeah let, let me help you know let me be part of the the fun and so yeah the next year I was right in hard amongst it all. You went overseas and saw grains festivals happening overseas and conferences and that sort of inspired you to bring that back home? Yeah totally and that wasn't really an organised thing either that was just some of us getting excited people who had time at the time ended up yeah getting involved in a a similar organisation that with similar principles in some ways but also different in the US so there's a really strong group of bakers and people involved in grain, you know, so growers and agronomists and a whole lot of people involved in, in particularly in wheat, but also other grains as well, had been getting together for a few years in the North American context. So at some point, a whole lot of us Aussies decided to go over together as a bit of a posse without a hell of a lot of connection between each other, other than being sourdough bakers in Australia. A group of us ended up at this North American conference and, and that really changed our whole perspective on collaboration and the power of actually working together to achieve things. A lot of us come from a background of doing our own thing in small business so we tend to be you know, staunchly independent and very anti-establishment in, in our base nature just because we forged our own journey a bit and making your own way in the world. Being collectivised didn't come easy or straight away yeah a bit of an ordeal of fire in, in many ways for mm. us but luckily there were enough people in the group who had some ideas about collectivist approaches that set up a framework that has served us really well from you know that day onwards and so it's been an amazing learning for all of us really but it was really obvious almost straight away how useful it would be to actually work together yeah. <laughs> and how much we could actually achieve. We come from very different backgrounds to that bread making thing. And I guess I guess when you put a group of people with really strong interests, dare I say passionate people together, we do have a whole stack of stuff in common fundamentally and that just needs that 
initial spark and catalyst of interest to, to actually just take off. And so, yeah, we've been really strong since day one, actually, in terms of being super supportive of each other. It's been amazing, really. But the thing is, of course, that sourdough baking's just a really ancient, beautiful craft and there has always been you know this amazing collaboration and collectivization of bakers around the world it's only been broken down in you know recent years by industrialization of this beautiful craft and i guess we just had to refine those basic connections that we have and are, are very fundamental to the way we relate to each other so i think actually it was probably really the force for it reoccurring is a really strong one and we probably just need to create space and time and it was going to be inevitable and it was going to happen and we were going to make this a beautiful new baking world we were going to remake it after the brutality of the last century of destruction of this beautiful craft so I think it was probably inevitable and it just didn't seem like that at all to us at the time because it seemed like we were recreating the world anew because it had been so destroyed. I'm James Fisher. I'm a miller and the name of the mill is Rock Paper Flower. Until recently I was a miller and a baker. It's an unusual duality. I renovated an old Scotch oven which is the kind of oven we've got here at Redbeard and so I found one in a dilapidated condition and invested a year of my life into putting it back together again. It's in Garfield, which is in Gippsland. And in that year, I sort of got very interested because I, I wasn't a professional baker, no training. It was really just like a passion for bread and particularly the place that a wood-fired oven has traditionally held in community as a hub for community. Yeah, like the hearth, that focal point, the Latin word focus means the hearth on which the bread is baked. And so I was like, wow, right, the, the, the oven is really important. If you close down all of those focal points for community there, I, th I think possibly there's a devastating effect on communities and maybe by reinstating small wood-fired, like, yeah, putting a focal point in a community would... So anyway, that's what I got into. And down that rabbit warren, I found, like, making my own flour and uh, so I ran with that for a while so now I'm buying grain from farmers and I'm milling it and then baking it in this oven and so that, that was sort of my introduction and in the time that I spent there I guess I learned how to make bread and particularly I learned about making bread using fresh flour because I haven't really done much else then as a miller more people became interested in my flour this community of people and back then, there really wasn't anybody else who was selling fresh flour. But there was like a little bit of talk about that coming in from America, from the like grain festivals they've got over there, and this focus on fresh flour. And suddenly I find myself in the middle of this whole sudden explosion of interest within the professional community for fresh flour and so more recently I've left baking to focus on that to develop regional grain economies to work more closely with farmers hopefully like blow that up a bit. So talk to me a bit about grain economies what does that mean? Well when you spend money on a loaf of bread 
everywhere that money goes is the economy of that. And if you're buying your grain from India or you're buying your flour from India and you're selling you know, the grain that's made in Australia to China so that it can be used for pig feed, you have this sort of like global grain economy where the money that gets invested in a loaf of bread just gets dispersed. And if we're really authentically interested in a sustainable food economy, reducing the food miles and keeping the dollar within a geographic region, when you buy food, not just grain, you just cut down the distance and the number of like internodes between the primary producer and the end consumer. And so it's a local food economy and in grain, it's a local, so a local grain economy, but really we, we look at a region, you know, maybe locality is more specific, you know, a word than just like within region. So my primary in selecting farmers is the soil system that they're that they're invested in. So whether that's going to be a regenerative soil system or an organic or biodynamic soil system, and that's pretty much all I'm going to deal with. I don't want you know, glyphosates in my grain. I'm looking at sustainable agricultural practice as the primary, like you won't get past without that. And then I'll be looking at geographic, uh, like so the regionality. So how far do I have to truck that grain to get the grain from the farm to the mill to the baker and cutting down the internodes, like the, the number of stops it has to make along the way so that the money that gets invested in the loaf of bread ends up in the pocket of the farmer and it doesn't just doesn't get split up too much along the way. And then the selection of grain, what kind of grain are we going to use? And I'm looking for really anything that's that's grown for flavour and nutrition or really anything that's grown outside of uh, a commodity market. The grain markets have turned into a commodity market like oil or gold where it just gets bought and sold and traded around the world just like oil and gold. So there's a, a huge quantities. And then the criteria, like the selection criteria for commodity wheat has got nothing to do with sustainability, nothing to do with flavour, nothing to do with nutrition. It's just about making money at the expense of soil systems, environmental sustainability, economic sustainability, cultural sustainability. What's your involvement with the grain movement that's happening here? There's a sort of loose central committee or board or you know a group of friends who like organizing group yeah and I'm a part of that I suppose I, I represent uh, a certain sector I represent the voice of Miller uh, in that community and what I'm up to is uh, it's a, I'm a micro Miller it's small scale as a link between the baker and the farmer which I think is quite distinct from the big commercial mills who are not a link between bakers and farmers. They're traders in a commodity product uh, who value add to commodity grain for profit, which is a different thing to what it is that I'm up to and other people in the grains movement I speak for as well. The big milling companies, it's just big ag business, they do not have an interest in the health of the end consumer. For those sliced white bread makers, it's not a value. It's just not. That's okay. But different enterprises have got just different value sets and they go into business for, with different intentions and outcomes. And, you know, 
that's that's just not their jam right so the millers they're not selling health and nutrition to their bakeries and their bakeries wouldn't be interested if they did you know so they've got a different set of values about what they're looking for from the performance qualities of the flour that it needs to lend itself to those bakeries and what they're producing and really the majority of flour that is made in this country is grown for roller milling you know which is a different milling process to stone milling which is what I'm doing it requires a different kind of grain with different characteristics so almost all the grain that's grown in this country is grown for roller mills and then it's milled for fluffy sliced white bread. It's just two very different industries that operate quite independently of one another. How many small-scale or artisan millers are there in Australia? Because they're small, they tend to be linked to another industry. So you could have a farmer who has a mill in his shed who value-adds some of his grain by milling it and then selling flour as well as selling grain, right? So you, there are quite a few of those sort of millers around. And then there are quite a few bakeries with mills. So his business is not selling flour, his business is selling bread, right? But if we were to include that, maybe you'd get up to maybe 20 or 30 or something like that, you know? Like, and that's, like in, in, that's an estimate of the ones that I don't know. I think that stone milling is important. I think things started going wrong in the food industry as a whole when the roller mill was invented <laughs> and it's just gone down from that point on so the process of roller milling strips flavor and nutrition from grain leaving this white powder that's devoid of life and devoid of flavor and nutrition a barren empty product which has its certain place in baking which I don't want to undermine like it delivers a certain set of performance characteristics that stone milled flour doesn't but it does not provide nutrition and so the, when the roller mills came in 1880 right, a massive slide in health followed it in human health like a colossal breakdown in human health bearing in mind more than 50 percent of the calories that you were intaking in 1880 were bread right and whole grain breads uh, and then we went overnight from that 50 percent of your calories coming from whole grains to you're now eating white bread so all of the germ and the bran has been stripped and thrown away there were massive deficiencies in vitamins and minerals that you know, came as a result now we have fortified bread so that you can carry on eating white bread they are to compensate for the damage that has been done by removing uh, those components of a whole food as much as you try and sift a stone milled flour you don't take all of that out so you have just a much more complete food. So even if you have a white flour from a stone mill, you've still got a much more complete food than if you have yeah. white flour yeah. from... And don't get me wrong, a sifted stone milled flour is not the same as a whole grain flour, right? But for a functional, sustainable grain economy, it needs to be local. And the stone mill exists as the center point in a local food economy in the same way that a roller mill serves as a centre 
in a global food economy. And so, you know, I think I stand for the you know, more stone mills, more small, local, independent mills where the baker knows his miller personally and the miller knows the farmer personally and the relationships that exist between the miller and the farmer and the baker which constitute human community since the dawn of human community. It's, that's really important stuff on levels that are beyond what I think we cognitively understand. And there's a lot that is broken in how human community and human relationships are that we, we don't understand like what's gone wrong and where to attribute it, but I think that a lot went wrong with, with the development of the roller mill and a lot of other systems as well that brought about global food economies. And we can do something about that, you know, it's just about where you choose to put your dollar and what kind of bread you choose to eat and as a baker, what kind of flour you choose to use in your food and whether it's a value to the baker that he knows the farmer and he knows the miller. and. I think that that stuff is really important, even if you couldn't taste the difference. I think that stuff's important, and I think it is already making really big waves. It's making a difference in how we relate to where our food is coming from and you know, how communities are structured. Well, bread is elemental. Bread is alchemy. Bread is different every day and as the baker we are a servant we are never a ma there's this language called master chef it's not a language for a good baker because we what are they the master of an ingredient or a technique we are servants of the ingredient how do we put the life back into bread and you know bread is my god and god is my bread so when we create it and then we share it you know, what we're trying to do is put all the love and all the knowledge and all the nutrition and make the, the grain digestible so that it can be broken. It's about we creating life to share it so that that family can break it and share it. I mean, what a tragedy just on a, just on a very practical level when mothers and fathers don't break their bread, someone else pre-slices it out of convenience because there's a trend... If you look at the Middle Eastern cultures or the, lots, so many cultures, the ripping of bread is the symbol of the coming together of family, of community. It's so profound that when you've got a pre-ripped bread, just that action's missed. My name is Mariasha and I started baking sourdough maybe 10 years ago from home and then I guess the more that I became obsessed with like trying to make bread I found people with similar interests I guess through Instagram it was a special connection with other people that were very passionate about sourdough and also a lot of us I think at the time of baking were the only ones in our little communities doing that and then re-educating people so I'm in a Jewish community in Melbourne and so I moved back seven years ago I grew up there and at the time, Norm was eating sourdough, Norm was making sourdough. Any, all of the bread, the bakeries there were just using additives, rubbish, everything. And no one seemed to really care. And then I started baking and people really wanted more. So first they like teach us. So I started doing workshops and I did maybe taught like 150 people how to make at home and educating all the difference of flours and sustainability and real bread and, and then Slowly that built up to people wanting to buy the bread and then I eventually my hobby just kind of went out of control and I started baking my garage and then eventually I slowly quit all my other jobs and then it became kind of full time 
and I then moved to a shop just recently. It's in Ripponlea and the shop is called Zelda and it's just a merge of all my cultures because I have a lot of inspiration from like wholesomeness and from the Jewish food that I was raised with but better versions of it and from the American Jewish food and the American wholesomeness in general and I know all my customers and I slowly train them to eat better bread and swap their bread for um, better bread but the whole time I, we've been supporting each other massively like John and the crew like John's a hardcore baker that's been doing it for a while and everyone just kind of merged I guess like bread geeks together and the grains community are crazy like I feel like it's the backseat of the classroom they're like naughty kids in the classroom that different bakers it's becoming more common now but when we all started everyone was pushing against what everyone else wanted. You had to educate your community on how much it actually should cost and why this bread costs more, why it tastes like this, why it looks like that. Because for so long people were so used to supermarket bread that you had to re-explain. Also, no one had been able, unless there was very particular bakeries, you didn't actually meet your baker. So this was a whole kind of new generation of people trying to bring back good quality bread and all that and the grains community we support each other so first started like a few people on Instagram and then increased and then started doing meetups and then two years ago it was an event of 300 people that came and slowly it wasn't just the bakers it was also the farmers and it was also the millers and it was then it became a few scientists who were trying to understand the cultures and stuff so it's also very hard work baking and often you're on your own so when you have a supportive group of people outside that like the grains and then you get pumped up and you get excited to keep pushing and to keep trying yeah every time we all meet up it's my favorite time of the year these are like my people also you I'm the crazy one in my village do you know what I mean I'm the crazy the crazy person and my parents are always worried because I'm like baking too much working too much and everyone's looking at me like how are you doing that? I got a bunch of kids, but when you come here, everyone's like that. And now you encourage each other and push each other and get different ideas. And yeah, it's really special. How do you see sourdough baking and all of the ethos of like localization as part of the sustainability movement and good for climate change and the environment? In terms of sustainability, what that means for me is that I know the entire process from beginning to end of who did what and that every single person was taken care of the entire way through. That's really exciting. Also, there's more transparency with your product so people know what's in it and who it was made for. There's more respect for the product. People care more about wasting the product. They care more about supporting the person that they know rather than the people that they don't know. It's also the food has more meaning to it. Like if you have the skill, you use what you have right there, then you're supporting everyone around you to build a sustainable community. That's very important. What did you see through COVID with people taking up home baking? That was crazy. Um, well, it, it just was so different when I started home baking 10 years ago that the whole time I was like, wow, I just can't believe how different this is. So much more information available. I also think that once you've had good bread, you can't go back. And also bread that you make in your house is the tastiest bread of all because it's like super fresh. And also you bring, you make friends like that. You share, people come to your house, you can give them bread, you get very proud. Yeah, I got a bit worried that I was not going to have customers, but actually, <laughs> and I have taught a lot of my customers how to bake, but actually it's okay, they do come. And I sold a lot more flour, I've been selling, yeah, a lot more flour, and that helps me get fresher flour by getting through the pallet quicker. 
but also it means that sourdough people know what it is like when I started selling I had to explain what it was but now it's almost like especially through COVID it's gone on the map now so people are looking for it more they know what it is more you have to educate less than you used to isn't it interesting how it happened like that I know babka also that happened around as well so babka is like a enriched dough with some filling that it's a staple in the Jewish community every weekend and then it was one of those COVID things I did sourdough bread in the first lockdown I did puzzles in the second lockdown I didn't do sourdough bread (laughs) also the first lockdown was exciting I think everyone was like wow this is so cool look what you can do just staying at home and then by the second lockdown everyone was like nah I think also when people bake their own bread, they understand how much work it takes. I think that's also true. One of the insights for me in doing it at home was how attached I became to my starter culture. Because I had a few failures and one that sort of worked, but I didn't know it was working and so I chucked it. And then later I realised actually that one was probably pretty good. And and then I got one from a friend and it worked. And I formed this relationship with it where I understood what it needed and we work together so that there's a real emotional connection i think to to the life form that is the star culture (laughs) for sure for sure it's my fourth child for sure and also you are always working on that relationship my name is ian lowe i own and operate a small independent bakery in launceston tasmania called the peace i moved to australia about 12 years ago. We're small. We have an outsized influence. We have kind of an international following, but I think that's because I was probably the first bakery in the Southern Hemisphere to do everything with sourdough. Like everything. Everything. Croissants or donuts or name, name a product that's traditionally yeasted. And it's one thing to do it with sourdough and have it be dense and sour. It's another thing to do it with sourdough and people don't know it's made with sourdough. Right? So I, I pioneered a lot of techniques that are now kind of spread throughout the world amongst bakers for working with sourdough to achieve results that are comparable to a yeasted product and the average punter wouldn't necessarily know. And a big part of that is through social media. So I've always shared everything I've done and I've gotten a lot of followers as a result and that kind of stuff. I'm from Texas and I cut my teeth at a lot of high-end restaurants in New York, but I never really loved them and I've always been into very simple foods. A lot of people want to quantify health nowadays. Uh, Being American, you see someone with an MD or PhD that has some new fad diet, right? Eating X, Y, or Z is healthy and they want to quantify what health is, but unfortunately that's not the way nature works and I think it's impossible to do so. There's no question that sourdough bread is healthier than, say, its yeasted counterpart. One of the reasons why yeasted products aren't as healthy is because you are reducing the microbiotic diversity. Sourdough is traditionally characterized by higher bacterial cell density than it is by yeast. And that's because bacteria are the most abundant life form on the planet by biomass, more more so than viruses. Traditional estimations for viral biomass was 10 to one compared to bacteria, but newer studies are showing that it's actually bacteria that outnumber viruses. The sheer diversity and their metabolic diversity in terms of the type of substrates that they can ferment are huge. And they exist everywhere. Name something, it's colonized. Like a lot of people don't realize that fog has its own microbiota. Yeah, clouds have their own microbiota. Yeah, a a lot of people don't realize that. So the idea of sterility doesn't exist. Nothing is sterile. So when you get a pure culture of yeast, baker's yeast, it's still contaminated with bacteria because bacteria naturally want to be there. No matter what they do, they can't keep out bacteria from a pure culture of, of commercial yeast that you buy. The difference is that you're inverting the ratio. In sourdough, for every one yeast cell, you typically have about 100 bacterial cells. 
when you isolate yeast in a laboratory setting, centrifuge it, and you grow it in huge fermentation tanks through something called the fed batch process. Even, even one tiny little bacterial cell is enough to eventually reach a large enough bacterial, bacterial cell biomass that you're still going to have for every 100 yeast cells in commercial yeast, one bacterial cell. So it's inver they're still there. You're not getting rid of them. And they're the same organisms that would be there in sourdough. It, it's usually some species of lactic acid bacteria, but you're just inverting the ratio, right? So normally it's 100 to 1 bacteria to yeast. And in the case of commercial yeast, you're inverting it. And when we really think about all the health properties from most fermented foods, most of it is associated with bacterial fermentation rather than with yeast. And a big part of that is because bacteria are more adapted to the things that we eat. You know, whenever we ferment something, we are using host-associated microbes. They're microbes that are associated with the vertebrate gut, with an invertebrate gut, or a plant, right? They're, and we eat all those things. And so they're things that colonize. And, and fungi and yeast are found at much smaller cell densities in any of those and as a result most yeast are probably what are called generalists they, they don't exist in any one particular niche but they exist in many niches it might be the case with bacteria as well but just due to the sheer density and diversity of bacteria whenever you're taking them out of the equation in fermentations there's only a few types of fermentation which they don't really exist you're going to lose a lot of the health benefits that come along with that so in terms of like the thinking about it from the larger scale. Microbes are everywhere, bacteria being the most abundant, but we, we talk about bees and, and pollinators and one of the things that we're reducing there is insects are the largest vector for fermentative microorganisms. We, we think about pollinators as being bees, but it, there's mosquitoes, there's ants, there's beetles. There, there's a lot of pollinators that aren't what are called obligate pollinators, meaning that they just do it on the side. Yeah. And so when you have habitat fra fragmentation, you're decreasing the diversity of, of insects, right, of arthropods, and they are the most important source of everything we associate <laughs> fermentatively, right? Like, that's where they come from, and that's going to have a huge impact because those organisms are also needed by the things that they pollinate. We talk about soil diversity, but we don't really think about the stuff above ground. So we talk about soil diversity because soil is very spatially dense and very heterogeneous and spatially structured. And whenever you have environments like that, they tend to be more diverse because it's not a homogenous environment. So no one thing dominates. But in that, that's what all growers are thinking about, but they're not thinking about the stuff above ground. And the, the stuff above ground is just as important. Organisms that might not be a permanent part of the lifestyle of these plants, but they might be a part of the short-term life cycle and they might be beneficial in ways that we don't know. And I think one of the, the biggest things that we need to rethink is we tend to th view things, microbes or plants or whatever, as, as good or bad, right? Like beneficial mutualist or a symbiont versus a pathogen. And I think that it depends on the scale that you're measuring that at. If you zoom out and you look at the relationship of something that might be parasitic or pathogenic across the lifetime or the geometric mean of a certain species, meaning the, the overall fitness, it might prove to be positive. So, I mean, like a lot of studies that are coming out now with insects, a lot of insects that we view as pests on certain crops are now shown to be positive. On that specific plant, we think it might be a pest on. In the short term, it might be a pest. But if you were to look at the global fitness of that species of that plant, 
it increases the overall fitness across all landscapes of that plant. And that, that's something that I just think we need to rethink everything. And so it really just shows that diversity for diversity's sake is really important. Hi, I'm Kim. I am a naturally leaven sourdough baker. Bake naturally leaven bread and naturally leaven croissants. We have a commercial yeast-free bakery in southwest Victoria, in Portland. I met John five years ago at a thing called Bread Ed, and it was the very start of the grains movement. And we all met over in South Australia at a bakery over there, and it was a whole heap of fellow nerdy sourdough bakers. It was like we fell down a rabbit hole and found a whole heap of like people. I watched John stand there, and this we were at a, a baking thing where this guy brought out this blob of grey mass and John's standing beside me shaking and I'm like what's that and everybody started laughing it was commercial yeast and I had no idea what it was but John started to shake because to him that was like kryptonite that was evil and yeah and then so we got to know John there shared the same passion for a naturally leavened bakery trying to get rid of all the nasties the white slice death movement that we're all you know working hard to fight and yeah and our friendships have all just grown since. How did you come into the world of sourdough baking? Uh, very accidentally. I started baking at home and feeding the neighbours and then ran out of neighbours to feed because they all were getting way too much bread. And I've had an old rundown kitchen that was empty and turned it into my first little bakery and just sold out of the back door until we got bigger and bigger. And 18 months ago, we built a purpose-built sourdough bakery. I think the sourdough movement has changed the way a lot of well my locals especially look at their bread. They now have a connection with their baker, they know where their bread comes from, They we educate them on where the flour comes from. A lot of us know our millers and we try to reduce food miles wherever we can, source everything as local as we can and sell it to our locals not ship it off to somewhere else from a factory. Do you prioritise things like organics? We don't prioritise organics as much um, as getting good quality uh, low pesticide ingredients where we can. I managed to source a lot of great organic fruit. With us a lot of it's price point too because we don't have that high-end customer and I also look at that it's more important for my families to have good fresh healthy no sugar no added crap bread from us rather than the two dollar loaf from the supermarket so we try to keep our bread down as low cost as we can and so the organic market is just not really there if we could we would but it's it's not sustainable and we also we also live in like we all joke it's like siberia we live on a road in and a road out so we're not on a, a transport route so for us sustainability also comes down to freight costs so for our business to be sustainable we have to be so conscious of waste we are a zero waste business we have no waste any loaves that aren't sold go into the freezer and get sold out of the freezer and so we actually throw nothing away we use everything our freight costs are exorbitant because they have to drive in and then drive out again so we're very limited to what we can get and so we have to make the best of what we've got it's not a big regional area for growing anything. We grow sheep. You can only use so many sheep in bread. We don't have a grain economy down our way. We don't have fruit and we have vegetables and that's about it because it's not the climate. But great for bread. Great climate for making bread. So everything we do is slow and we, ne we need cool. Yeah, we do long and slow process, long fermentation, better gut health, 
better nutrition. I'm James Partington. I own a bakery called Staple Bakery in Sydney, Seaforth. I met John in, I think it was 2015, in Adelaide through a mutual baker friend of mine, Emily Salkeld, who has Small World Bakery. So that's how we met at the Breadhead. It was then called Breadhead uh, Conference. John and I and three other bakers, we travelled to the States together and we did a little tour and went out to the Washington State University Bread Lab and took part in their grains festival. So there was five Australians, we were the, the dinky die Aussies over there. It was during that time that I met John, became aware of Redbeard and John's whole ethos on food um, and sustainability and organic flowers and you know whole grains and natural fermentation. So for me around that time John was really influential in how I built my bakery and encouraged me a lot to do various things in terms of how to create a business that was not just sustainable from a product perspective but from a people perspective and just a kind of a holistic approach so he was like he was the, he was the guy who just he's always been this champion for me it's just been like you know when I was thinking about setting up a bakery we were having a swim in Sydney together and he just said what are you waiting for like why why yeah just do it you know and it was around that time that John was a judge at the Royal Easter Show he was in the sourdough category and, and he's been a judge there for many many years and he was encouraging me to to join that establishment you know the Royal Agricultural Society is an important uh, arm of what we do as bakers and having that connection with food systems so I entered the awards and won gold and the champion loaf and it's funny though because I wouldn't really have called him a mentor unless someone said to me is he a mentor and I go yeah well he is he's it's such an impact on me what made you switch to bread making so I was in advertising media for 20 years I then found out I had a serious heart condition I had to have a aortic valve replacement operation took 10 weeks off work and during that 10 weeks was advised by my cardiologist to you know get my chest muscles moving and sort of do exercises that were, were that were likened to kneading dough I took him literally and started making bread yeah so that's my backstory is make bread to get better and then I fell in love with sourdough and then started this whole journey of baking at home in a wood-fired oven then starting a bakery that was one day a week one morning a week Saturday mornings which is when John first came to stay with me uh, and come and help and then I realized there's this whole world of joy in baking in this community which you've seen today like and it's just so nurturing and loving and my background was in an industry that just was not nurturing and loving it was cutthroat it was win jobs at all costs and I kind of got to a point in my life where I just didn't want to do that anymore. So I would regularly sit in meetings with global blue chip companies with million dollar budgets and all I can think about is making bread on a Saturday morning. Yeah, it was like this, you know, this love affair, it was crazy. Tell me how you see the grains movement, sourdough, how does that fit in with sustainability, climate change, the climate crisis? That's a massive question. I think what we're seeing at the moment is it's like an awakening into a reality that we've ignored for a long time and the reality is the food systems that we live and and breathe by it currently and in the past are becoming unsustainable we can't continue to farm in the ways that we do particularly in Australia as well we grow crops that aren't conducive to the environment 
that we have here and the grounds that we grow them in and the soils that we grow them in and yet we persistently keep on trying to produce crops whether they be cereals whatever that are just not conducive to this environment and it's sort of like we have this denial that it's happening and then we wonder why things don't work and we wonder why we have issues with water systems and agriculture in general you know there's pressure on farmers and yet we persist in doing the same thing all the time it's not this land isn't built for growing those things so why do we keep doing it it doesn't make sense and then we use chemicals where we shouldn't use chemicals i think we're slowly moving in that direction whether we can get to where we need to be i don't think we can at the moment i think we're a long way off that and i think it's probably going to take as we've seen in the last 12 months with covid a catastrophic event to create a behavioral change you know awareness is one thing behavioral change is another and until we start to build that awareness even more and see the impacts of that awareness then we're never going to bring about that behavioural change. So I think it's completely doable. We just don't like the discomfort that comes with it. But I, I do believe in small agricultural food systems. I think that's where it's at. But no one knows what that means. Really, do they? I mean, and the supermarkets and big agriculture, they're not interested in that. Even if you look at simple things like we were considering solar panels on our roof. So how do we cut our energy costs? And how do we make that more sustainable? Those are things that I really want to push towards. And then how do we look at the waste that we make and make that more sustainable? So where does that waste go? How do we use that waste? Where does it, instead of it going to landfill, where can we send it? Like we have minimal waste in our bakery, but what we do have in terms of, I wouldn't call it waste, it's just got excess bread that goes to local school and they have a toast program there. So, you know, or it goes to the get people at Lifeline in the local community, or it goes to Vinnie's. It's not difficult to do that. It just needs people being open and accepting of it. It's all there for the taking. It's just the energy that's required. It's easier to take loaves off a shelf, put them in a black bag and chuck them in the bin. Of course it is. Than putting those loaves into a crate and driving them 10 minutes down the road. You know, but what would you rather do? Feed a community or chuck it away? And there's the benefits that go with feeding that community. I've seen it firsthand with the, uh, the bread that I supply to the local school compared to white sliced bread that they normally serve, they'll eat one slice of mine to probably two or three of a white sliced bread because it's more, it's, they're more satiated, it fills them up, it's a whole grain loaf. And I take comfort in that and I think we could all do that. But we choose not to because we're tired and we've got other things to do. Tell me a little bit about this emerging community around grains. The grains movement really kind of flourished off the back of bread ed became grains. We then became aware of this global community where people were as excited as us about what we were doing. And then that tied into local grain economies where now I talk to farmers who grow my grain that I put through my mill. We mill freshly milled flour and that's all come about because of, because of the grains and the local grain economy that's all part of it I, I love talking to my farm my farmer i call my farmer they're not my farmer but i don't own them but like bettina at whispering pines she will ring me and she will say i've got 10 tons of rye do you want it it's yours or shall i sell it and i'm like i'll take it so i honor her and say i'll take that grain we've entered into an agreement which is great because i know that that's a commercially viable thing for her but then she's also saying, what should we grow next season? And I'm like, wow, you're actually asking me. And I'm like, could we grow this? And she's like, yeah, we can grow whatever. But I'm entering into that agreement with her because I will buy whatever she grows. There's trust and there's risk. She's taking a risk and I'm taking a risk. We don't know whether that grain is going to be good, bad or indifferent. But what we're saying is we're in this together. Now, 
that only works in that situation. If she was a one of a hundred farmers that I could call on and we didn't have that relationship, then we couldn't do that. She would grow that grain, I might take a bag of it and go, you know what, it's not for me. Thanks very much, but we'll leave it. But no, I'm going to take it, good, bad or indifferent. And we're going to use it and we're going to, okay, it might not be what we want and it might not be the most ideal grain to make, but we'll work it out. And I think there needs to be more people like Bettina of Whispering Pines and there needs to be more people like me as a baker going, I'll support that. That's how it's going to work. But the grains community in general, there's more bakers like that out there. And that's only a growing thing. I think that was really insightful, the, the whole COVID thing. Because when we hit lockdown, we panicked like everyone else did as a bakery. I was ringing my miller and going, okay, are we, got, are we going to get flour? Or and I'm, I'm ringing the guys at Whispering Pine, Bettina, like, can I get grain? And I was getting double deliveries so that I, didn't, I knew that I'd have enough to make Sorry. and keep me going for however long. Yeah. That happened in the first month, and then we started to realise actually everything's going to be okay. We're okay, you know, and we saw it with toilet paper, we saw it with flour, we saw it with pasta, all these staple household ingredients and, and foods that were available. So it, it is scary when you take away people's food, that's a scary thing. I think those principal, primal things that people have available to them, once you take that away, it creates fear and then people do panic but I, I think with smaller agricultural systems and smaller networks and, and sustainable grain communities I think that is reduced somewhat because we're not relying on one big producer to make all that stuff we're relying on many yeah. and so if it doesn't work here and okay we run out of things here then there's nothing to say that we can't drive for two hours down the road and get it over there I guess when you have one big supplier who's supplying every baker on the eastern seaboard yeah. then you're in competition with every baker for their supply you are absolutely and so for them to be able to deliver is really important to you to keep your business going I thought I'd let John Reid have the last word. I asked him how all of this fits in with the climate crisis, and I think he sums up what so many of these people involved in the grains movement feel about baking bread. Well, it's literally become a dirty word, hasn't it? I mean, I think bread with the whole gluten-free movement and the reaction to such bad bread has, has spread in the last 100 years and, and become really, in the end, synonymous with bad health and bad outcomes in terms of agriculture and bad outcomes in, in every facet of our life as it's become industrialised, particularly over the last 60 years. But I, I think there's been an appalling backlash inevitably, which has taken the idea of bread right back to being considered part of the problem with the world rather than as being something super special and, and, and fundamental to the way we have always found nourishment so we had to go that far <laughs> really it was almost like we had to almost lose beautiful bread to actually rediscover it and i think there's something beautiful about the nature of sourdough with the mother the culture that is required that you have to keep that alive to be able to bake and also that that can be split off and shared with someone else and then they can start baking. That's you know fundamental to, to the craft. At one level it is about sharing, you know, breaking bread and 
being part of something bigger and more important than just yourself. And But it, it is about nourishment and about human collaboration. I struggle to put into words because it's something that is, for me and the people that I commune with in, in this beautiful craft, it, it becomes something that is, I guess, like all amazing beautiful crafts that are at the basis for the way we actually do life at, at a really fundamental level. It, it's not easily encapsulated and, and I think that that's something we're discovering as well as how to frame not only our relationships to bread and to nutrition at a really fundamental level but ha- how to reframe our entire existences about around things that are far more important to us than money and prosperity and wealth and and stuff it underlies everything we're trying to achieve in many ways as humans living together it's really core and i think the the longer you spend time in and around bread and in around the culture of baking the more it just blows you away how important it is it's just something to do in your life something that frames and makes sense of why you're living and that I think is something that it, I just keep on discovering more and more so that's why I'm, I'm struggling to put it into words because I still haven't really got to the bottom of how important it is t- to me to the people that I live and work with. Baking bread at a really fundamental level is an incredibly sustaining and fulfilling and beautiful craft that just keeps on more and more sucking you in and the more you get into it the more you learn you don't know and it was it's that whole sense of of really good crafts that it's like that landscape when you first approach it it, you know it is beautiful and interesting and complex but then the further you dive into it the more that landscape opens up internally and becomes this you know super rich just an impossibly complex thing that you'll never get to the bottom of and you just realize you could spend hundreds of lifetimes and people have and that's the sense you get is that we're part of a really beautiful ongoing wonderful relationship with these group of microbes and other animals that share the planet with us that we've in this evolving constantly fascinating beautiful relationship with that just for me has just meant that I've never been able to leave it alone since the day I found out about sourdough baking you know endlessly fascinatingly rich salt of the earth people Grassroots change. Soap grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green at saltgrasspodcast.com. My name's Ali Hanley, and links to many of the things discussed can be found in the episode description at saltgrass.podbean.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au.